0: The sermon, I I ask that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, as you have been doing throughout the morning. I pray that as we consider even the last words of the song we just completed, that we would understand the greatness of God. You truly are great. And Lord, as we listen to these truths in in our passage this morning, some of them encouraging truths, some of them challenging truths. I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to hear them because they come from your word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the message title there is How to Fight Temptation, part one, because next week we'll be still in this passage and closing it out. Um, but as we head a little closer into to Holy Week, which is coming right up soon, we have Palm Sunday next week, we have Easter in two weeks, so... It was in God's timing that we find ourselves in Luke 4 this morning. Now, it seems that we would study as we get close to the resurrection Sunday. Maybe it would seem more sensical to make uh, study from the end of Luke because we have those important dates on the church calendar. But I think we're going to find that these passages in Luke 4 that mark the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus are wonderful reminders that become all the richer for their correlation to those events near the end of his earthly ministry, namely the Passion Week. So Lord willing, today and next Sunday, we'll be examining the temptation of Jesus as told by Luke in chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. We'll be there in a moment. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to find ourselves looking at how Jesus began to reveal himself to the Jews. And this began with that wonderful proclamation from the prophecy Isaiah that It has been fulfilled in your hearing, he told those who were in the synagogue. And in the aftermath of that, which was the first recorded attempt uh, to take the life of Jesus by an outraged crowd, um, because they could not accept what Jesus said about who was helped by the prophets Elijah Elijah and Elisha. And so we're going to get to that on Easter Sunday, and I think you'll find that it does indeed correlate with the resurrection, and uh, we'll learn much from it. This morning, we're going to focus on Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, his fast, and his temptation to turn the stones into bread. But I'm going to read the whole temptation account, though, so we have the context, and also to see where we're headed next Sunday. This morning, we're going to have a a big idea. The big idea is that we need the Spirit and the Word to fight temptations. And three points beneath that are deprivation can increase temptation— Memorization can help application. And God's commission requires submission. So Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days, those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, "'If you are the Son of God,' until an opportune time. So we're going to start here with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus, we talked about this as we discussed his baptism recently. Full of the Spirit, he was always filled with the Spirit. In Acts 10.38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit always. Now Luke records that he returned from the Jordan. So even though we had the family tree of Jesus in between, we talked about last week, uh, it's kind of wedged between the baptism narrative and this narrative of the temptation. Uh, But now Luke is continuing the narrative from where he left off at the baptism of Jesus So the impression we get then is that the desert account happened right after the baptism account, and the wording in the original language gives us a sense of immediacy. That is to say there were no significant time between those two events. So Jesus was baptized by John, and then immediately he returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And he was there, verse 2, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Forty days in Scripture is kind of a recurring time period, a recurring theme that you see from time to time. For example, the flood, the rain lasted for 40 days, Genesis 7, 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and every living thing That I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Then Moses was on the mountain for forty days. In Exodus 24, we find that Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. When Elijah was fleeing Jezebel, he was miraculously fed for 40 days. In 1 King 19, uh, starting at verse 4, he, but he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, "'It is enough.'" Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. I'm going to pause there for a moment because it's my mom's birthday, she's watching, and she loves cake. So here, mommy, you can get by just with cake. See? So, happy birthday. <laughs> and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And another place where we see 40 days was that when Jonah preached, finally, in Nineveh, after trying to get out of it, his warning was that Nineveh had 40 days until their destruction, which was prevented by their repentance. Jonah 3.4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we see this theme of 40 days often in scripture and we see something in each of these I mentioned that can in some way be considered alongside the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. During the 40 days of rain, Noah and his family were preserved from destruction, protected by the God who by his Holy Spirit had sealed the door of the ark. Noah's faith and obedience to God was his salvation just as Jesus' faith and obedience to God got him through his 40-day fast. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain communing with God and learning his moral law. Jesus spent 40 days being tempted, but with the Spirit to lead him. Elijah spent 40 days being sustained and strengthened by the provision of cake and water. Nineveh had 40 days to respond to Jonah's warning, and Jesus had 40 days to fight the same temptations that had caused Nineveh to be subject to the wrath of God. And so during these 40 days, Jesus ate nothing. He was fasting. Now, this is an extreme fast. John Calvin warned that Christians ought not to try and do a similar fast for 40 days, for they are not Christ. They are not filled in the same measure to the, with the Spirit. We don't have the fortitude of Jesus. We don't have the prayer life of Jesus. Nor can we expect to be sustained in the same way as Jesus was, since his was a unique situation. You may recall that I have used the following words before that we should consider, when we look at any passage of scripture, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive is simply telling us something that happened. There should be something we learn and are edified in every passage of Scripture, but that is not the same as saying that the thing being presented is somehow a rule for all believers. Some narratives in Scripture are simply descriptive, telling us what happened. Others are prescriptive and give us a direct application. Prescriptive means it's intended for the believer to follow it. Just as the doctor expects you to follow his prescription Some passages of Scripture point us to a rule to follow or a statute to obey, but this passage is not prescriptive. Luke is not teaching that we should make 40-day fasts a part of our religious life. For one thing, most of us would not survive it. It may be a great weight loss plan, but all of your organs and your brain itself would be failing or near failure if you were to try this. Neither are we to take a sort of word of faith approach and say, yes, I understand the human body can't take this sort of abuse, but yet I will do it to prove my faith and my allegiance to Christ. No, I think that I agree with Calvin that to do this would be kind of making a mockery of Christ's fast by attempting to somehow complete the same thing. Calvin was especially concerned with those who considered such extreme fasts and other acts of penance to have some sort of saving grace attached to them or that one who fast achieves some sort of extra merit before the Lord because salvation is in faith alone, not in the keeping of Sabbaths or feasts or anything like this, as Paul attests in Colossians 2:16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this is not to say that no one should ever fast. Perhaps there may be a time that you feel it would be helpful to undergo some type of fast to focus on prayer and Bible reading and spiritual growth. But be careful with this. It is very easy to convince ourselves that somehow the fast itself is the most important thing rather than the prayer and meditation on God's word. So that's what Calvin was concerned about, that people would sometimes say, I'm praying and fasting, but really they thought the fast itself was gonna have some effect, short of prayer and meditation. So we need to be careful likewise. So the fast of Jesus here is descriptive, not prescriptive. However, what Luke says next is sort of obvious. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Well, of course he was hungry, right? But was he really hungry? People would ask sometimes, well, did Jesus really feel hunger in the same way we did because he was God and we're not? Did he somehow have a lighter sentence of hunger than the average human would after not having eaten for 40 days? Well, I think that scripture makes clear to us that Jesus suffered all of the difficult issues of the human condition, including hunger. In Hebrews, the author is making a strong point about Jesus being sufficient for us, as being superior to Moses, as one who fulfills the law, as one who helps us in weakness, and one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. And why and how can he do that? Because he suffered as he was tempted, and he was tempted as we are, Yet without sin, and if he was tempted as we are, then his hunger certainly was just as painful as it would have been for any other human. Hebrews two eighteen says, "Because he he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." And Hebrews four fifteen, "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." So Jesus had real hunger. We also know that Jesus had real thirst. Um, in John 4, 6, and 7, we see that Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. This is the story of the Samaritan woman. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He was thirsty. On the cross, our Lord said, he was thirsty. John 19:28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. I thirst. So Jesus had a real hunger and felt it. And for some of us who get a bit crabby after just six hours of not eating, we must realize Jesus' hunger was downright painful. He would have felt it with a ferociousness. He may have been weakened to the point of stumbling, he may have gotten dizzy. His hunger was not a sin. He had a real need for food. This text tells us that this was now at the end of these days and he was hungry. So when it says it was the end of these days, I'm assuming that now he was free to eat. He had ended his fast. It may be noted then that these temptations took place at the end, after Jesus was weakened from the fasting. Temptation often increases when we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And for some people, Uh, that struggle with the sin, they've been given this acronym, HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, what do we want? Comfort. We want comfort, right? We might want to be snuggled, perhaps. But when it comes to sin, we need to struggle against it, not snuggle with it. So HALT. We're tempted more when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And Jesus was certainly hungry, That's quite the understatement, in fact, by Luke, right? And now comes the devil with the temptation. He might have been lonely and tired as well, but he had this Holy Spirit, so he probably wasn't lonely, but he was probably tired. So now the devil's coming to tempt. Let's again be careful not to make this a sort of prescriptive thing. People often associate all the temptations they have to the devil. The devil made me do it, or the devil tempted me to do it the devil's been bothering me all day trying to tempt me. People say things like that. You may feel like the devil has personally assaulted you or personally tempted you. I hate to tell you, but you're probably not that special as to warrant the personal attention of the devil. The reason I know this is because unlike God, the devil is not omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He's not omniscient. That means present everywhere at once as God is. God is everywhere at all times seeing every act of every human being simultaneously and God has power to carry out his will in the case of every human and every human action but the devil does not have that power so if the devil cannot be present in more place than one at a time what are the chances he's spending every waking minute tempting you no that's certainly not happening It was the case with Jesus, and we can certainly understand that because Satan would have loved to tempt Jesus, to trip him up, to cause his mission of salvation to fail. But I doubt that any of us are so important to the devil that he's personally spending all his time with us one-on-one. Perhaps his minions are somehow involved, and we know that we are constantly in spiritual warfare, but the devil likely does not give you and I personal attention. Perhaps the demons tempt us, but they don't need to, we are quite capable of tempting ourselves. Our desires, our temptation, are enough to get us into trouble. So the devil does not even need to give us his personal attention for us to get ourselves into trouble. I refer again to Calvin, who reminds us that not all temptation comes from Satan. Often it comes from our own lower nature. And this is confirmed by Scripture because James wrote this in James 1:14 and 15. Each person is tempted when? When, this, when the devil's whispering in their ear? No. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So really, the devil doesn't even need to tempt us. We are lured and enticed by our own desires. Even though our own desires bring the majority of our temptations, Jesus did not have an advantage in this respect. He was, or did have an advantage because he had the, the Holy Spirit in a full measure, a fullness that we do not have. He was perfect. His own desires were perfect and always to do the Father's perfect will. Yet somehow, in his pride, the devil thought he would be able to tempt Jesus into sin. So again, our big idea this morning was that we need the Spirit and the Word to fight temptations, that deprivation can increase temptation, that memorization can help application, and that God's commission requires submission. We see the deprivation of Jesus, in this case, 40 days without food, and of course, that can increase temptation. The temptation is real. The hunger was real. In a sense, then, Jesus was truly tempted But in another sense, he was never really in danger. And the reason that Jesus was never really in danger is because he modeled for us complete submission. He was fully God, and yet he humbled himself to be a servant. His desire was always to come under compliance to the Lord's will. Not my will, but yours, Jesus said to the Father. We are all called to various Positions in life where we must be submissive to proper authority. We're called to submit to governing authorities. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So this includes civil authorities in the government, It includes authorities over us, perhaps in work environments, authority over us in the church as well. All people in the church are to be submitted and subject to the order of authority God gave to his church. So Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words... If you're constantly fighting leaders above you, it's not going to make it very joyful for them, is it? Um, It'll make them groan, though. The world will push back on these ideas. Anarchy is practically built into our society. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what I am. You can't tell me to submit. And here's one that causes great controversy... 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 31, Paul is writing about order in the church. He says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in the churches of all the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says." If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is talking about in the formal church worship service, by the way, not throughout the whole church, Sunday schools and stuff like that. It's talking about during the worship service. And then in 1 Timothy 2, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, in the context of a group setting like this. This is a very unpopular idea. And many churches have decided that this part of scripture is not the inerrant word of God. But it, they think it must be an error. Why is it so unpopular? Well, many reasons, and that could be a, its own sermon or a series of sermons, but I have a couple of suggestions. First off, Part of the consequences of the curse on the earth due to the sin of our first parents is that God told Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Many theologians take this to mean that the desire of women will be to take the place of authority that God has given to men. Again, I'm completely aware of how unpopular this saying is. I'm aware that some people listening right now might have your neck or ears burning in anger at the scriptures I just read. I realized that. And I, with fear and trembling, I read them anyway. In fact, in many churches, they will never, ever read these passages of scripture. Never. And many, if they do read them, attempt to explain them away so as not to offend those who do not want to hear it. Those who would either ignore uncomfortable passages of scripture or who would try to explain them away, do so to their own shame. But they are scriptures. I didn't put them in the Bible. So put your stones away, please. God gives us certain roles. No one is less important or valuable than anyone else in God's kingdom. But we are given different roles in accordance with his design. Now, men are often accused of using these passages in a wrong way. Some men have twisted these passages for their own sick control games. However, God did give roles to men and women, so how can a woman possibly accept this and submit to the plan of God when her desire is to have a position of leadership that God has not prescribed? She can learn from the example of Christ. How can men learn to submit to their bosses when they're not liking them at the moment or to church leadership or to the laws that the government has put in place? By learning from the example of Christ. How can children learn to submit to their parents as Scripture commands? By learning from the example of Christ. And what is the example of Christ? Some of our middle schoolers memorized this portion of Scripture recently. Here's the example of Christ, Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the example of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus gave up his own will in order to demonstrate to us the humility we should have and the willingness we should have to submit to the roles God has given to each of us. We must submit to the government and our leaders, unless it conflicts with God's word, we know that. We must submit to the leadership in the church. I have leadership over me. Our church has an elder board, and the church needs to submit to that leadership. Scripture also tells us that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, in all of these areas of submission, may I strongly say this. In cases of abuse, whether physical or emotional abuse, no one should be submitting to be treated like a punching bag or allow constant emotional mistreatment. Submission to leadership, whether in the home or in the church or at work, comes with a high responsibility of those in leadership to serve well in keeping with God's good word and, in his, and with his guidance in human relationships. Oasis Church will never be the kind of church that tells a woman who's being hit that she should go back and submit to being hit. I will never tolerate abuse like that. To the wife, Scripture says, submit to the husband But to the husband, he says, love her like I love the church. I've asked women this before because, believe me, many women have struggled with this passage. If your husband perfectly modeled Christ-likeness, would submission really be a problem? Not for a believing wife. For an unbelieving wife, no matter how good the husband is, she will never completely or joyfully or cheerfully submit because she can't. But for a believing wife, she can at least have the desire to because she can look to Christ as her example and choose to honor Jesus in her marriage. All of us fall short in joyful submission to some extent and to different degrees. The husband has not only the responsibility to lead and care for his family, he must also model Christ. And in the church, leaders are not to lord over others, but to serve them as Christ did. Sometimes that means correcting people in a spirit of gentleness. Sometimes it means using the keys of the kingdom, that is, church discipline, to biblically restore, if possible, the backslidden. So again, our big idea this morning was we need the spirit and the word to fight temptation. Deprivation can increase temptation. Memorization can help application. God's commission requires submission. Why have I spent so much time speaking of submission? Because it is one of the keys to understanding how Jesus fought these temptations. He was completely submitted to the will of the Father, so he would only do what the Father willed. So when the devil said in verse 3, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread, remember what happened right before this. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke to him. We saw that when we were in Luke chapter 3 at verse 22. The father spoke, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now if the devil says, if you are the son of God. The devil likes to question what God says, doesn't he? Did God really say? Would Jesus have been wrong to use his creative power to make bread from rocks, by the way? In and of itself, I don't think so. Later, he would multiply bread and fish. What could be wrong to do so for his own legitimate need, his own legitimate hunger? The answer is that it wasn't in his father's will for him to do so, or else he would have. He had the absolute sense of self that was fully committed to the will of God. And now he quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 4, Jesus said to him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now here we must let scripture interpret scripture. So what was Jesus really saying here? What was he quoting from Deuteronomy? He was quoting from a passage where Moses is reminding the people about God's guidance and provision and protection in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.3, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary said, if it was not God's will for them to live, they certainly would have died. Therefore, they did not live by bread alone. In other words, even if bread were your only food, you would only have it if it were God's will. So Jesus knew scripture, and he was full of the Spirit, and he was submitted to the Father, and that's why we need the Spirit and the Word to fight our temptations, because deprivation can increase temptation, memorization can help application, and God's commission requires our submission. Now, after the service, we're going to have a wonderful meal together, and as we do, let us keep in mind our church vision statement, which is, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, we just talked about in Sunday school. If you ever have someone say, what's the Oasis Church all about? Here it is. It's on the posters in the front, and it's up here now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and when you go to the potluck. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when you go to lunch on the tables there, I've had one of my daughters put a little piece of paper there with talking points for you. And I'm just going to get some of them out of the way before you go in there. Yeah, it's been kind of dry lately. It's warm out. Um, It's springtime. Something's going on with sports. Something's going on with politics. So we've talked about that now. Let's talk about these things when we go to lunch. Okay. So let's discuss what we're learning together. Let's discuss things we're learning in D6 or from the Bible studies when some of us are studying 1 John Are from the sermons, and as you eat together, do not let the opportunity slip by to have a discussion about these things. So here's the discussion points, just to prepare you, and then they'll be on a little sheet there on your table. Um, We need the Spirit and the Word to fight temptations. Ask each other this, how will you be endeavoring to better rely on the Spirit and the Word when it comes to fighting temptations? Deprivation can increase temptation, so discuss how hunger, anger, loneliness, and being tired make it more difficult for you to fight against temptation. Memorization can help application, so share a story of how the Lord brought his word to your mind at some time and used it to bring you out of difficult times. You know, I found that most believers in the church, if you ask that question, they'll have an answer for you. They'll have an example of a time when the Lord brought the word back to their mind to help them in a particular situation. Share those stories. And finally, God's commission requires submission, so confess to one another areas where you struggle with submission to proper authority and how you can reframe your mindset to have a, a mind like Christ's as found in Philippians 2, which we referred to earlier. So it quieted down an awful lot towards the middle of the sermon. <laughs> I realized that that's a, a topic that a lot of people are not comfortable with. It's in the word of God. We have to grapple with it. But all of us have things we need to learn to submit to, don't we, in his word. So as I close with the word of prayer, I encourage you during lunch, go and discuss these things together. Encourage one another in the faith. Have a great time. And uh, we will see what the Lord continues to do in our midst. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And the example that you set for us, In this case, and in many other accounts of scripture, we see your example being set. Lord, when we struggle with our ability to submit to proper authority in our life, which we all do at different times, Lord, help us to remember your example. Boy, you laid down fully your rights as God to suffer on our behalf. Lord, let us take that example then and apply it to ourselves and say, help me to do it as well, Lord. Lord, I pray that when we do that and we put ourselves in full submission to you, that that would be one of the things that helps us to battle against these temptations of life, which really do come from our own desires. Let us fight it, Lord, with an urgency. Let us fight temptation, Lord, as though it is life and death. And may you help us with your spirit's empowerment to understand we will have the victory and we can have the victory. And may we rely entirely on you as we do our part to see that the work is accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.